Welcome to the Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 50, Continuous Improvement and Root Goal Analysis with Gregory Offney. Hey, it's episode 50, amazing. Do you remember when you learned about root cause analysis? My guest, Greg Offner, is focused on goals. So what does he do? He guides his guests with root goal analysis. Why are goals so important to him? Well, let's let him tell the story. Greg Offner, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Hi, Bella. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Greg, it's really nice to have you here today. Can you please introduce yourself to us and tell us what you're doing now and the path that brought you to where you are today? The path was winding, for sure. I had a stint in corporate America where over 15 years I built and led sales and marketing teams. Some of that work was international. Much of it was domestic here in the United States and in varying industries. And during that time, I was introduced to the lean methodology, um, got my belts, as they say. And the thing that most people didn't know was that at night I had an alter ego. I, I had a second life. And for the same amount of time that I was in the corporate world for that 15 years, I was also performing at night as a dueling piano player. And I know that's conjuring up some people's images if they watch the show Parks and Rec of Duke Silver, the alter ego saxophone playing alter ego of one of the characters from that show. But yeah, at night I would play at the piano bar here in Philly. And then as I would travel for business, I would book gigs all over the world. So I've played on five continents and many, many countries. And and all of that kind of came to a halt in 2015 when I lost the ability to use my voice. I found out I'd need many surgeries on my vocal cords to even save my voice, to give me the chance of speaking and singing again. And in that process, I decided that what I was really passionate about wasn't found in the corporate world, but was found in the work that I do now, which is helping corporate leaders, helping organizations all over the world develop their people. I call it taking the irk out of work. I know that might surprise some of your listeners, but the world of work doesn't always have the best reputation out there. And so I don't I help think, it. yeah, I don't think that's a big surprise, but taking, <laughs> taking, taking, the school, irk, right? taking the irk out of work. Wow. Wow. So what, what was it? Was it the experience of not being able to communicate with your voice that brought that brought that to you? What what was it that really said to you, this is this is where I need to go? Well, I thought I realized pretty early on in my career that there was something wrong with the way we work. There's no I've I've nothing against business. I think business is the best force for change and transformation on the planet. When a business is run ethically and consciously, We can do amazing things, things we can't do with a government, with an NGO, with a nonprofit. Business is a great force for driving change. But if you think of work as an institution, as a where we go, not necessarily what we do, what the 
product of our work is, but the process of work. I, I had a feeling very early on in my professional career that it, there were a lot of inefficiencies. There was a lot of what I refer to as legacy friction in this concept of work. And initially I thought that the best way to change it would be to get involved with an organization, rise up the ranks and take a leadership role. But I found the higher I got in every organization, the more I found there was layers and layers of red tape I wasn't expecting or what was the grass is always greener syndrome with one organization turned out to be no the same grass. The dirt may be in different places, but it's the same grass. And so that experience of losing my voice caught me at a period where I was so frustrated with moving from one industry to another, rising up and then sort of getting disenchanted by more bureaucracy. And I realized that if I was going to affect any meaningful change, it had to be on a larger scale and it had to come from outside. So I had earned enough data. I'd earned enough sweat equity in the world of business to be able to speak from experience, to speak, speak from a place of personal experience. Now I needed to speak to a wider audience and losing my voice was that catalyst, how some people have a life changing experience that makes yeah. them say, I want to spend mm -hmm. more time with my family or I, I want to go see the Himalayas. I wanted to make the change now because I didn't know how much more time I had with my voice. And I thought if I wait, I'll, I may never be able to do this ever again. So I left the corporate world and now I've started working with the corporate world, but as an outsider who brings insiders experience, who brings an interesting perspective from the world of entertainment, which makes the work I do fun. It's not super, I don't take myself very seriously. The work is serious, but I like to have fun while we're doing it. And it seems to be resonating. I mean, I've worked with virtually every industry right now on several continents. And the work I do is not only fulfilling, but it's transforming other people's lives too, which is what I really love. So when, when you say the, the irk in work and, and you talk about, about the process of work, it, you're talking about more than, you know, what we in the business call, you know, business process and business process management, which is um, unfortunately often divorced from people right it's 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 the it's in some people's minds it's the idea that what well, we're, we're going to track our product as it goes through the plant and gets you know gets things added to it and it gets finished and it goes out into into the supply chain right or we're going it's the process of developing that product but you're what you're talking about is much more i believe and correct me if I'm wrong about the pro about the people processes and and how people are involved in that. Is that in a in a way, yes. And perhaps this comes from my bias of working predominantly in sales and marketing, where we have mm -hmm. quotas. It's really clear what I need to do to be successful in a sales role. And in marketing, lately especially, the data really drives decision making but not all roles have that benefit. And so I would see colleagues in various industries and at various companies I worked at show up to work each day, be physically present, but mentally somewhere else. Mm -hmm. They weren't fully engaging in the work because they had no way to measure, much like when you talk about tracking work process or managing a project where there are gates, there are progress metrics. The average person doesn't have that. In, in a way, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but they show up, there's a big stack of documents on their desk 
and their job is to get through as many documents as they can. And when they show up the next day, there's more documents on top of that. And it just seems to be this never ending cycle of what am I really getting done? What's the goal of my goal? Yeah, I'm showing up to do this work to get through these documents, but to do to do what? And we see this right now in this return to work conversation that's happening. I think of an article, I, I'm based in Philadelphia, and I think of an article that I saw in a local paper. These two prominent attorneys that run a, a fairly successful firm were quoted in the paper talking about wanting to bring their employees back to the office because there was a dry cleaner next to their office. And that dry cleaner needed their employees to be able to flourish for their business to succeed. And I thought, I have never heard of an attorney who said as a criteria of wanting to work for a law firm that it be located next to a dry. I mean, it's just, what is the purpose of coming back to work? It's not to patronize a dry cleaner. And that's, I have nothing against dry cleaners. I have nothing against that business. Mm. But when we talk about the purpose of work, it's not to be in an office. We used to go to the office because that's where the machines were that we needed to do our job effectively. And we did our job effectively because when we did that, we served clients. And when we served clients, we created value for the world, let's say. But we don't need to go somewhere to access those machines. Most of us don't. So we have to take an honest look at the commute. Does it right. serve a purpose anymore or is it legacy friction? And for many of us, it's legacy friction. And uh, yeah, and it's a tremendous amount of time out of people's day, right? Um, if you have time that people then have to find childcare for, that they have to get a vehicle for, or find a public transportation mode that works for them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's uh, it's a great time for listening for, to podcasts, but you can go for a walk and do that too. So, uh, yeah, and, and not to belabor this point, but it's, I mean, you can even take this to the world of finance and the conversation about blockchain. You and I remember a time when banks weren't open on the weekends, when they closed at 3 p.m., when you had to go to the bank to get your money. There wasn't an automated teller machine. There, there wasn't, a, you know, I think the first one was called Mac, right? The money access centers. Yeah, yeah. well, that's so, Philly, yeah, yeah, it's Philly folks say we've got to go, still say yeah. we've got to go tap Mac. Got to go yeah. tap Mac. Yeah, tap Mac. So, this conversation now about blockchain in the finance sector has all to do with access to money, validating transactions more quickly, where banks hold a check that you put on deposit for two or three days to ensure the funds clear. Blockchain would eliminate that. Now there are people that make money off of that legacy friction, just like right. legacy friction of the commute means that a dry cleaner can be set up next to an office building and have a pretty steady stream of clients. But the world changes. We don't use telegraph machines, and those were once the best way to communicate. And business is being very resistant to this. And what I love about your audience is that they're plugged into the idea of continuous improvement, of finding ways to eliminate legacy friction in whatever line of business they're in. I want to help people do that, but maybe not as relates to processes, as relates to people. I think I get it. I think I get it, Greg. So. Clue us in a little bit on the relationship to uh, to being uh, a musician, uh, being in entertainment, and the work that you do. So if you want to watch a speech, there's this amazing website called YouTube. There's millions of speeches out there right. that you can watch, you know? Today, the people that I serve, they want content, but they really want an experience. I used a phrase earlier, the goal of your goal. 
And that's just a, a fancy way of saying, why am I really here? If all my audiences wanted was information, they could go to YouTube. They could find a great speech, but they want an experience. And so my background in music allows me to create a very unique experience where music is used not just as entertainment, but as a metaphor. Music actually existed before spoken language. So it taps into a part of our brain that's even deeper than logic. And so when I use music in the program, it not only gets the audience's attention because they don't normally expect a piano or a performance during a keynote. They expect talking, but it also taps into that part of our brain that says, okay, I'm, I'm in for a story. I'm in for something that's going to be really helpful because this is speaking to a part of my brain that's pre-language. So it's a nice device for me to be able to use in the programming, but it's also an interesting experience when we talk about performance, because most folks don't think of their office as a stage. But I think that when you walk into the office, you're, it's just the same as walking out a performer walking out onto a Broadway stage. That is the corporate stage. And how we perform when we're on it dictates a lot about our satisfaction. And that's got to be true, right, also for the virtual world, right? So you're meeting with somebody on Zoom uh, or, you know, whatever your, your, uh, your connection point is. The, there is that performance aspect, right, of being able to get and hold attention and be expressive in a way that really gets your point across. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there's something about the way that we show up on Zoom that's contrary to the way we show up, many of us show up in offices. For example, if I were to show up on this call today, right, we're on Zoom, we can see each other. And, and if I got here, and I said, hey, Bella, great to see you. And then I, then I disappeared. I, I went down like this. And <laughs> for those of you who are listening, not watching, yeah, yeah, Greg, just, just disappeared from the screen, pop back up. Yeah, that's right. where he so, went. So tell me that's disruptive, right? Yeah. I think it's disruptive for your experience of this Zoom call. But when many of us show up to our office, when we were showing up to offices, we had this funny ritual of going to our desk, putting whatever belongings we had down, we're on stage. Yeah, we're there. And then what do we do? We go to the washroom or we go to the kitchen or we go to a colleague's desk. And it, are we here to work or are we here to do other things? We're on stage now. And the people around us notice what we do. They, they're judging us. It'd be similar to a professional sports player walking out on the field. They do the national anthem. They line up for the kickoff or for the first pitch or whatever. And then they run back into the dressing room because they forgot their socks. I mean, we have yeah. the strangest routine when it comes to work. And again, I think this goes back to the idea that work as a process, what I call it, the institution of work, it's, it's got its problems. It's got some irksome features to it. And so the work I do aims to take the irk out of work. So what, when you meet with people and, and work on this, what, what are some of the big irks that really get to them. You, you talked about the commute already. What mm -hmm. else is, is uh, irking people? Well, one is the, the, the misalignment of incentives. When you think about most people, their office is not where they would choose to spend their time if they could. We're seeing this now, yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. However, what's the incentive to complete my work quickly if I'm at an office 
if I'm expected to stay till 5 p.m. Now, yeah, there, there's none. So the incentives for the employer and the employee are still misaligned. Now, for some salespeople, that's not the case. They have a quota, and when they've hit that quota, the boss doesn't care if they're golfing, if they're going fishing, or they, they, it doesn't matter. But why do we resist having quotas for other employees? It certainly is going to take more effort on the part of leadership to determine exactly what it is that I need you to do. But when that's done, there's now incentive to innovate, to be efficient, to be effective. And folks would be eager to work because they'd know that they could leave work when they were done. And that comes you know, back that to You know, that reminds ultimate... me. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, it reminds me of a situation that happened uh, early in my career where I was working on, um, I was working as a writer at the time, and uh, I was able to do that fairly quickly to get through my work and get my writing done. And there was another woman who really struggled with her, with her writing. And um, when her writing went to the editor, she had to get a lot of revisions done. And she would stay very late at night because in those days, as you said, the machines were in the office. We couldn't really take that work home. Uh, she stayed late at night to make those revisions and get her work done. And I remember one day being furious when I heard somebody say that this woman was so amazing. She was such a hard worker. She was putting in such long hours. I thought, well, you know, that's really kind of stupid, right? Right? Isn't it better to get to do the work right, get get it done, and then have, you know, at that point I didn't think about being able to leave early because that just wasn't done. But but that we could do more other things that were important that needed to get done. And it was it was such a big surprise to me that someone would think that, that that would be, you know, that she, that she was amazing because frankly, she wasn't all that good. That was why she seemed amazing. Yeah, it's a case of input versus output. I think of this example of the high school student that shows up for basketball tryouts in the newest Jordans and the slickest gear. And before anyone takes the court, if you looked, you would say this kid's gonna be the starting point guard. He's just, he's got all of it. The moment he started dribbling a basketball, it was clear that this was Bambi on roller skates, that this individual <laughs> had no basketball talent whatsoever. <clears throat> and that goes to the heart of what you're talking about, Bella, which is we're, used to a system where we manage on input. How much time are you putting in? Are you at the office? Are you showing up? What we would do well to move to is a system that is based on output. What is the value you're producing? I believe that income follows impact. And all of these conversations that I hear about minimum wage, pay gaps, there, there's truth to some of it, that there are obscene gaps in pay and disparities between the highest paid and the lowest paid. But in truth, when folks say, well, I need to be paid more, I would challenge them to look at the impact that they deliver for their employer. And not to look in the mirror and say, I'm worth this, but to look at the employer and say, what am I worth to this employer? Do they know what my impact is? Am I making the impact that they're willing to pay for? And if the answer is yes, I'm making the impact, then we have a right to go and ask for more money. 
but we need to raise our impact in many cases, the impact we're providing. And that starts with understanding why we're there. What is the, to use Clayton Christensen's phrasing, you know, what is the job to be done? Right, right, right. So you use this really interesting term, uh, which is root goal analysis. We, uh, and of course, you know, we spend a lot of time in lean and in uh, some of the Six Sigma work in doing root cause analysis, you know, trying to uh -huh. understand if we have a problem, what of all the possible things that could be causing it and then coming up with, with countermeasures against those root causes. And usually there's more than one root cause to a problem, but root goal analysis, that is something different. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, to, to, to understand that, it's helpful for your listeners to know that our brain takes up 3% of our body's mass but uses 20% of its available energy. And we as, a, as an animal, as a creature, are built for energy conservation. We never knew when our next meal was coming, and so our body is generally wired to conserve energy whenever possible. And we've gotten into the habit of using very quick, very surface level thinking when it comes to developing goals. Not everybody, but most of us. And I see this in the corporate world when I work with executives and we talk about what their goals are as an organization. One that's easy for an executive to throw out is we want to be the industry leader. And if you push back and ask, yeah. well, when you're the industry leader, what will happen? For a moment, you get this deer in the headlights look from the executive and they regain composure pretty quickly and they give you an answer. But then I press again and I say, and what will that allow you to do as an organization? And we really get to this, what I call root goal through that process of iterative questioning. And it's a process that is very taxing on our brain. So we don't engage in it often unless we're, we're asked to. And when we do engage in that type of questioning, it gets a little frustrating. It kind of feels like we're being attacked. See, I used to ask why, you know, we have the five whys, right? Right, yeah. But why is a pretty confrontational question. So what I realized was that asking someone, what will that allow you to do? Or what will happen when? Sort of gets them in creativity mode. It takes them out of defensive mode and it puts them in creation mode. And so this concept of root goal analysis really starts with identifying a goal and then saying, when I achieve blank, whatever that goal is, I will be able to, or achieving blank will allow me to. And when we can fill in the end of that sentence, that's, that's closer to the real goal. But then we do that again and again and again, again until we get to a point where we look at the answer that we put down on paper and say, I don't know. I, I literally can't justify it any further than saying that's what I want. And when we get to that point, it's likely we've we've achieved what philosophers call an autotelic goal, what I call a root goal. Autotelic in, in Greek is is two words, uh, auto meaning self and, and telos mm -hmm. meaning goal. So literally the goal is this. And for a lot of people, it's the experience of, you know, you asked how I bring music into the work I do. The experience of playing music for many people is just an autotelic goal. You know, yes, I'm a professional, I get paid to play on stages, but when I sit down at the piano in my home and I just play, I don't, I don't know, I just like it. I like the way the music feels when I can feel it in my body. I like pressing the, I, I just like it. I can't explain it in any other way. That's why I play, because I love it. 
That's and, an autotelic goal. And it's worth, when you get to that point, it's worth the practice, right? It's worth, it's worth the time spent on the practice and the money spent on the lessons and the and the and and having to manage the feedback and, and all of that, because you get to that point where, yeah, this is, this is it. This is the state I want, I want to be in. But, but you, you're talking about corporate goals, right? So. For, well, no, for, even personal goals. I think managers could get so much more out of their people if they helped them set these root goals, because I, from my personal experience, when I was a salesperson, I said whatever my manager wanted to hear when it came to quota time. Uh, just get off my back. Here's my quota. And because I wasn't connected to it, if I hit it, great. And I hit it more often than not. But when I didn't, who cares? I didn't really care. It wasn't a root goal. And if my manager had had this process to be able to use he could, I'm thinking of one job in particular, which is why I'm saying he, because I've had all sorts of managers, but he could have said, okay, well, when you hit this quota, what will that allow you to do? And even just thinking about it that way, the smile on your face, yeah. now we're justifying these goals in a whole other way. And when we create that emotional connection, that autotelic connection with a goal, all of a sudden now I really, really want this. And I know why I want this. I, 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 I so, so, yeah, go ahead. I coached a guy where this came from was at one conversation I had several years ago, this idea where I was coaching an executive, small company was ready to retire, but said I needed to buy. He told me, he said, Greg, I need to buy a 30 unit apartment building before I can comfortably retire. Now he wasn't in the real estate business. So I thought That's... this was a very strange thing to, to say. And I said, well, Tell me more about what you mean, because as I understand it, you have a pretty good schedule right now. You have a lot of freedom and flexibility. He said, well, I want to spend more time. He said, Greg, I want to spend more time with my grandson. I like fishing. I want to go on more fishing trips. And when I'm on these trips, I'm, I'm often unreachable. And I know that the passive income I could generate from this apartment building would give me more time to go fishing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not an Ivy League graduate here. But I knew that the apartment building was going to create new problems that he's probably not accounting mm -hmm. for and that he doesn't have the experience to manage right now. So I pressed a little bit further and, and ultimately said, you know, if I could show you a way to create the space to go fishing without having to buy this apartment building, would you be interested? He said, sure. And it was then that I realized that it's not normal for us to get to that autotelic point when we're setting goals. We get to what sounds like a good goal, where if we're at the bar or with friends and we say, hey, you know what? As soon as I get this apartment building, I'm going to be set to retire. They go, wow, that's great. Wow, an apartment building. Hey, or hey, I, I want to be a millionaire. Great. There's nothing wrong with being a millionaire, but do you know how much work that is? How much sacrifice that takes? And when you ask most people why they want to be a millionaire, most people come back with some sort of answer that actually relates to the concept of freedom. I want more freedom in my life. They believe that being a millionaire will give them that freedom. So the logical question is, if I could show you a way to get more freedom without jumping through all those hoops of becoming a millionaire, would you be interested? And most people- and of course, are. yeah, and of course people will say yes to that. So now, so now with the, you know, so go back to the, the work environment, right? And so, as you are working with an individual or an organization on goals, how much, how often does it come back to, I want more, I want more time, I want more 
space. I want, I want more freedom. I want to have an experience versus, um, you know, other, other types of autotelic goals. Is, are you, do you see a theme in what is really driving people? It's, that's a hard question to answer because it, all of our goals wind up somewhere on Maslow's hierarchy. And probably higher on the, the hierarchy, right? Yeah, some, some, in, in some cases. I mean, if you've got an employee who's coming to you saying, I want to raise so I don't get kicked out of my house. That's, I mean, that's a very serious conversation to have because that's the bottom need, that's safety and security. I mean, this person right. is not dialed in when they're at work because they're worried about where they're going to live. More often, what I see is working with executives or, or middle managers that want to become senior leaders. There's this conversation right now around retaining people. And a lot of it has to do with the younger generation wanting a title bump or a pay increase. And so asking, well, well, what do you think is going to happen or what will it mean when you get that? So what will it mean when you become a manager? I, I had a person, I just had this conversation yesterday. So they have an employee that said, I'm thinking about taking another job offer because this company is offering me this title manager too. And so my, my client's the CEO. I said, well, did you ask what will happen when she gets that title of manager too? He said, that's oh, a great idea. Let me go ask her. And she said she'd feel recognized that it meant she was progressing, that her family would see that her career was going somewhere. That's not an answer that we would have received if we hadn't asked a question strategically, what will happen when you become manager too? Cause that's not a defensive question. That's let's create this. What does it look like? Right. Right. And if I can help you paint that picture without the title, or in this case, I did say to my client, I was like, well, can you create a manager to title without causing too much problems in your organization? <laughs> um, that's often the fastest way to a goal. Yeah, straight line. Yeah. But the goals often relate to how I will be seen by the world or how I see the world. That's, that's really all this comes down to. Money is, is just opportunity. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's right. Phil M. Jones, I believe, is the one who says this. He's a colleague of mine. He says, money is the silent applause you get for a job well done. I thought that's, that's a beautiful way to say things. But that's it. Money, money is just opportunity. So opportunity to do what? Right, right. And so, then that, that, yeah, that takes you on to, onto that, you know, to spend more time on the boat or, you know, mm -hmm. or what, whatever, whatever it is that the person is, is desiring or thinks they desire right now. Yeah. But it seems to me that in terms of that particular CEO, Greg, uh, and not to, that, that, that that's part of being in senior leadership is the is that understanding that one of the things that that employees really need is that recognition right that they need recognition that they need to feel that they're progressing even if it is sometimes laterally as opposed to up because up is not always available to us um that that's I mean, that's part of being a leader, right? That it is to, is to be a better student of humans. Um, it's not always something that people get on their way to leading an organization, though. There, there are a lot of imperfect leaders. I am one of them. We're all learning as yeah. we go. We're all making mistakes. I think the goal, at least for me, is to not make the same mistakes twice. Um, but yeah, emotional intelligence is absolutely 
an important factor in being a leader. But it's not something that we generally spend a lot of time training. Uh, in fact, if you look yeah. at the global spend on training and development, there's corporate, the corporate world, I can't say corporate America because this is a global figure. The corporate world spends $300 billion each year on training and development expenses. And if you drill down into what those numbers actually mean, 98% of that spend is on job specific technical development. So if you're an accountant, your training is on how to be a better accountant. Right. What I've, what I've come to believe is that that accountant goes home to a family. That accountant goes and lives in a community. And this may surprise some business owners out there, but that accountant is a person, not just an employee. So what if we took some of that 300 billion, not all of it, because we've got to train our people to be good at the job they're in. What would, it, what would it look like if we took some of that money and allocated it to developing the person, to developing tactical skills? We call them soft skills, but I don't like that term because they're actually the most difficult and the most valuable skill to right. create and to have right now for an employee. So what if, as, what if as an organization we developed our people? What if we transformed our business by transforming our people? What if we took that approach? Because then that person not only brings that fully developed self into the work they do as an accountant, but there's a knock-on effect into the work they do as a parent, into who they show up as in their community. Again, I think business is the greatest force for change. And I think our missed opportunity is that we could change our people. And by doing so, not only transform our business, but literally change the world around us. So what's stopping us, Greg? The investment of time, the investment of money into these soft skills. Organizations are not spending the money developing these soft skills generally until someone's at a senior leadership level. They're not getting coaching at an early age in their, you know, in their career. Um, they're not getting access to these soft skill developments in their early careers. They're generally getting them eight to nine years in when they're at a senior leader level. But if you look at every other uh, you know, professional, professional musician, professional athlete, they've got coaches. Why do we treat our business professionals as if they're business amateurs? We're, we're spending a lot of money to employ these people. A fraction of that spent on developing them could transform their performance, would transform our organization. And, and I, I think... I yeah, see it simply because I see it simply because that's what I do every day. And so my mission is to to make it easy for my clients to see to for us to be on the same side of the table and say, good, let's do this. Yeah, I think the, there's a there's a bigger payoff as well. I mean, you talked about the impact on on families, on community, everything else. The huge challenge right now of the great resignation is that when you lose somebody, you're losing their knowledge, right? You, um, even if you thought they weren't a great employee, they were probably great at something and there's going to be a hole and you might not know what that hole is until they're gone and, and you see how big the hole is. And it's going to cost you a lot of money to replace that person, whether it's, you know, it's time lost in productivity or it's, it's, the, it's the time and money spent on recruiting and then training a new person. And then what you're going to have to change in your organization because of whatever the, whatever the reason was that the last person left. And if the reason the last person left was because their boss didn't receive that they were a human being, um, 
you could spend more money over and over and over again. And it would be highly valuable to spend a little bit of that money on uh, improving uh, how we treat each other. Mm -hmm. it's a, there's a great economic case to be made for it. Precisely. Greg, if you were put in charge of one of these companies that you are working with now, what would be the first thing you'd do? <laughs> Other than maybe quit, but no, I'm not going to let you quit. Yeah, I just put you in charge of a company. You're the boss. What are you going to do? I, I'd start asking a lot of questions. Yeah. I think the responsibility of a leader is to remove obstacles for the people they lead. That's why, you know, I went to military school and in the military, leaders have stripes on their arms or they have different insignia on their collars that show a level of authority. That level of authority isn't to arbitrarily boss people around. It's to organize people effectively. And generally, they're organized effectively in pursuit of removing an obstacle. You know, in, in wartime, that obstacle is the opposing force. But in business, I see that obstacle as friction. Our enemy every day, it may be said that we don't need to have an enemy, mm. but if we had one, if I had to identify an enemy of business, it's friction. And not just any friction, because some friction makes you grow. Some friction makes you stronger, but it's unnecessary friction. The primary stress factor for people at work is unnecessary friction. They want to show up, do their job and go home. Right. Get all the other crap out of my way and if I were put in charge of, of, a, of an organization, the first thing I do would be start asking questions because it's the people at ground level that know what's going on. The executives don't have a clue. And I say that with the greatest respect for the people that hire me and pay my check. Yeah. But they'll admit that they're so far disconnected, most of them from the day-to-day -day operations, that if they're not asking questions and if they don't have good people between them and the day-to-day -day operations that are funneling them good information when they ask those questions, they're out of touch. Right. And, and yeah, that, that is natural, right? And people people will be wanting to cover themselves and not provide that information up. And there's all sorts of systems, invisible systems inside the organization to make sure that the leaders don't really know what's going on. And often it's because the leaders don't want to know what's going on. I so you'd be I mean, out there asking questions. Yeah, I can't speak to the motivation, but I would simply say if I were put in charge of an organization, I would start asking a lot of questions. Right. Greg, how can people find you? They want to, they want to catch up with you, have a conversation, meet you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on, thank you for asking that. I'm on all the major socials, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn's where I hang out most of the time. It's where I put a lot of my content up. You can find me on YouTube. Um, but I'd like to offer something out to the audience. Since we started talking about these tactical skills, if they're interested in learning the seven key skills that they should think about developing in their people right now or developing in themselves, simply investing in ourselves. They can text uh, 33777, just text the word KEYS, K-E-Y-S, to 33777. Um, it'll ask for your email, but I'm not gonna spam you. I'm just gonna send you a one sheet uh, that, that tells you what these seven keys of success are how you can use them in your life. And, and that's that's at least enough to get started to find resources that are meaningful to you. But I'm always here to help if you have additional questions. Um, pretty sure it's easy to email me from my website. So right. go to gregoryoffner.com and just drop me a line. I'd love to hear from them. I'd love to hear what was valuable in this conversation for them.
Yeah, great. So yeah, so reach out to Greg, where all of the information will be in the, the show notes. So you, you can find it on uh, the, the podcast website um, uh, or, and on your uh, podcast player. So Greg, thinking back to where you started and where you are today and the, the learnings you've had along the way, what would be your one piece of advice for a young person starting out? If I could give one piece of advice to a young person starting out, other than what we've already talked about on the show about right. being clear with their goals, just something else. Yeah. It would be that in my experience, you'll never make it. And when I say that, what I mean is starting out, I always thought that if I got to this promotion or to this level of income, that I will have made it, that that will be it and I'll achieve I'll achieve corporate homeostasis and that'll be it for life. And what I've found is that there is no such thing as making it. We're always on this path where the world around us is changing. We're changing within the world. And the closest I think we'll ever get to making it is getting better at navigating change and operating inside this level of a bit of discomfort. And so my advice would be if they get comfortable with that concept of discomfort and consistent change, they'll have a pretty comfortable career. That's great. I love that advice that that's very unique, but it's, um, it's really true. It's really true. But there are those moments along the way where you have that momentary You've achieved that autotelic goal. That's our new word for the day. Um, you, you enjoy it, but life changes. Things will change. So beautiful, beautiful advice. Thank you, Greg. Well, thanks for having me on, Bella. It's been great to hang out with you, get to chat a little bit. Hope we do it again All soon. Right. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Gregory Offner for being my guest at the Edges of Lean. What are your goals? And why are they to you. We'd love to hear from you. Contact Greg at GregoryOffner.com or find him on LinkedIn and start a conversation. Find me at LeanForHumans.com or on LinkedIn or comment wherever you watch or listen. And tell a friend about the edges of lean. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and video with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbike with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.